summer is down. Uh, we're going to be getting back into uh, our next summit. We've been doing a series called Peaks of Grace, where we've been surveying uh, events that happen on top of mountains uh, throughout the Bible and, and what significance uh, that has, what is, what is God trying to say to us through the things that he's done on top of mountains. Uh, and this week we come to our next one. Uh, recently, I was getting my hair cut and my barber and I were talking. I love my barber. He's, he's a good conversation partner and uh, he's really a great guy. And, and we're talking uh, about the fact that my wife and I, we homeschool our kids. And he, he made this comment. He said, you know, that's got to be nice because, you know, you're religious people and it's got to make it easier to follow all the rules that way, right? You know? And I thought about that. And I, after the fact, I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, how people see the church and how people see Christianity, oftentimes, if they're not familiar with it at all, or even sometimes there's misconception of the church, too, to be honest. But, you know, there's this perception of it's about following all the rules, right? It's about keeping all the rules. And to be clear, my wife and I don't homeschool so that our kids can keep all the rules. There's no guarantee uh, that your kids will be perfect Christians if you homeschool. So, uh, that's a bad reason to homeschool if, if you're considering it. Uh, but we do it because we believe we can give our kids a better education. I'll just say that. Here you go. Um, but no judgment if you go to public school either. I'm a product of the public school myself, so uh, you, you can turn out okay, I guess, right? Uh, so I was thinking to myself later, you know, it's really interesting, right? Uh, because people tend to think of Christianity as just another religion, Right, like uh, you know, and, and each religion has their own set of rules to follow to be considered a, a good Jew or a good Muslim or a good whatever. And this is something really, again, that the world doesn't understand, and it was no different in Jesus' day. We're going to see that today in our text. Today, we're going to ascend an unnamed mountain from which Jesus would give one of the most well-known sermons of all time, affectionately called the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, Jesus addressed this misconception that, that Christianity is just another world religion. Remember back to an earlier sermon I did in this series on July 30th where we looked at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And I want you to see how these two summits are connected. Remember that the laws uh, were given uh, on Mount Sinai not as a means of salvation. It was given to show God's people how to have a good relationship with their king, with their God. And remember, he, he gave the commandments to Moses, and, and God tells Moses just after this, that he would raise up a prophet like him, a prophet like Moses, who would speak to the people all the words that God gives him. And it's by listening to this prophet that we can have life. Now look at, look at how Matthew introduces Jesus in his gospel, because this is really fascinating, right? So consider the parallels between Moses and Jesus. I think... Matthew's being pretty clear here who, who this prophet like Moses is. So you have Moses 
you all know the story of Moses, probably, but Moses comes out of Egypt, right? In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus comes out of Egypt. Moses came through the waters of the Red Sea. So in Matthew chapter, chapter 3, Jesus comes through the waters of baptism. Moses, you might remember, spent 40 years in the desert. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, spends 40 years, or 40, not 40 years, 40 days in the wilderness. Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. So Jesus gives the law on another mountain beginning in chapter 5. You see that? All in sequence. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Moses was used by God to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. Jesus came to deliver his people from slavery to sin. Moses uh, was used by God to establish a covenant with his people. And so, too, through Jesus, God would establish a new covenant with us. So you see, it's clear that Jesus is the prophet like Moses that God promised. And just as Moses received God's commandments to show his people how to live well with their God, now Jesus, the new and the better Moses, will preach a sermon here that will show that life in the kingdom of God is not another religion with a set of rules to follow so that we can be considered good Christians. So let's look at this sermon now. Uh, Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read verses 13 to 27. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 965. And once you're there, I invite you to stand with me if you're able, uh, out of reverence and respect for God's word, and follow along with me as I read. Uh, Again, uh, I'm going to be looking at the entire sermon, which is three chapters, five to seven. I'm not going to read all of that. We're just going to read the very end, uh, the final verses of the sermon, and we'll circle back and we'll talk about uh, different parts of the sermon throughout. All right. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes now to behold the treasure of your word today that we may delight in it more than precious jewels or the sweetness of honey on our tongues. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So I chose to read the end of Jesus' sermon because I want you to notice the contrast that he ends his entire sermon with. And he uses three pictures to show us this contrast. One is a gate. It's a wide gate or a narrow gate. The other is a tree. And there's two trees. One has good fruit, one has bad fruit. And then lastly, there are two houses. One is built on a rock, and one is built on sand. And Jesus uses these three pictures at the end of his sermon to warn us against one way and to commend us to another way. But it's not what you think. Jesus isn't preaching about people who keep the law and others who don't keep the law. If you look through the sermon, you'll see this, that this isn't what you see. you see. You see Jesus saying things like, some people pray one way, but you should pray like this. Some people give to the poor this way, but instead you should give like this. Some people obey this way, but I'm telling you that you need to obey it this way. Do you see it? Both groups of people from all outward appearances, are keeping the law. They're, they're doing these things, both groups of people. There are two ways, but one is easy and leads to destruction. There are two trees with fruit, but one is thrown into the fire. There are two houses, but one collapses into the sea. Jesus is contrasting two groups that both, by outward appearances, keep the law But one does so to their destruction, and one to everlasting life. One is the way of religion, and the other is the way of relationship with God in his kingdom. And so I'm calling this mountain in our series the Mount of Kingdom Living. This is how you live when you're already in the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at three trail markers on our ascent to this summit of kingdom living. And in these three trail markers, we'll see how Jesus teaches that relationship is greater than religion. So my three points this morning are, uh, it's better, it's sweeter, and it's harder. So let's look at those each in turn, starting with relationship is better. When you consider how Christianity relates to the world around it, there are Two ways Jesus tells us that it's better here. First, Jesus says his followers are like salt. If you look at chapter 5, verse 13, salt does two things. It makes other things taste better. Think about corn on the cob. It's still summer, right? We can talk about corn on the cob. Maybe we can eat some later. Any corn on the cob fans? No? All right, good. Uh, so if you eat corn on the cob, it's, you know it's not very good without a lot of butter and salt, right? Uh, 
But when you eat that corn and it's, it's properly salted, you don't think to yourself, wow, this salt is delicious. You know, you think to yourself, that's a great uh, ear of corn, right? Jesus is teaching his followers uh, is that his followers will make the world around them a better place to live. Salt was also used as a preservative to keep things like meat from rotting. And it's Christians who have historically been drawn into the rotting places of society and, and into broken lives, into broken places to work, to heal, and to preserve things, people and relationships. And here are just some of the ways that Christians have made the world a better place throughout history. This is just a quick survey. It was Jesus and his followers who championed the dignity and the worth of women and children when they were considered nothing more than property in his day. And it was followers of Jesus, like William Wilberforce, who fought to end slavery. It was Christians who made the first major advancements in education and literacy, leading to nearly all of the first major universities being founded by Christians. And almost every scientific pioneer uh, were Christians because they believed in a God of order who could study the world uh, that he made and understand things in an orderly way. In, in 282 AD, Christians in Corinth saved the city from plague by risking, risking their very lives to rescue people who were abandoned in the streets to die. It was Christian compassion for the poor and the sick that paved the way to the creation of the first hospitals. Even things like human rights and equality flow from a distinctly Christian worldview. And simply put, no other world religion or philosophy has done more for the well-being of people than Christianity. The second way Christianity has made the world a better place is by being light. Jesus says, starting in verse 14 of chapter 5, and light has two dynamics to it. First, followers of Christ are attracted to those who are different from them. People who may not think or dress the way that they do, or maybe even not vote the way they do. Christians are attracted to them. They, they want to go to these people and love them and care for them. Secondly, Christians are not just attracted to others, but their, their goodness is attractive. When others see the, the goodness of our lives, it's attractive by those who are different from us. By contrast, Jesus teaches that religious people are under a basket. What does he mean by this? He means that they tend to stick together. They don't like being around people who are different. They're not drawn into broken places, into broken, broken lives to be a blessing to others. When they see people who don't obey the Ten Commandments, religious people keep their distance. But those with those relationships with Christ are not turned off. By people, by people who are, who are, who are, who are living, living in the midst of very, very broken lives. Yes, they're not repulsed. They have compassion, compassion and endurance to those places. So this is the first, the first difference in relationship between Christ and religion. religion. Our next trail marker will show us that the relationship with Jesus is sweeter than religion. 
sweetness of a relationship with Jesus because as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you will not find a single place where Jesus says, live like this, and then God will be your Father. You won't find it. What Jesus teaches is that you can live like this because God is already your Father. That's the only way you can live by any of the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It's by having God as your Father already. You see this in Matthew 5.16 where he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Some may wonder, how is it that Christians can relate to the world in a non-condescending manner? How can they show love to those who disagree with them? Jesus says you can do this if you know the sweetness of God as your Father. For another example of this, look at chapter 6, verse 25, where Jesus tells us not to be anxious. A religious person would look at a command like this and think, great, okay, now I've got to not worry. I've got to add that to my list of things to check off every day, and I'm just going to try harder, and I just have to w- watch more things in my life. I'll try not to do that one. Uh, thank you very much, right? That's how a religious person would treat any command. But Jesus says, no, the way to not be anxious is to, not, is, is to consider the fact that God takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And then Jesus says at the end of verse 26, are you not more valuable than they? Isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? Jesus is saying that you can keep his commandment if you know that you're already valuable. This is the difference between Christianity and religion. Religion obeys the law to try to get value. In chapter 6, 1 to 4, Jesus shows us that religious people help the poor so that other people will praise them. They do it so that other people will praise them. They try to impress others with their public prayers in verse 5. And in verse 7, they even think that by praying a certain way, with enough words that they can get God to listen to them. And if you read on, they fast for the same reasons in verse 16. Simply put, a religious person thinks that if they do all these good things, then people will honor them and God will listen to them. This is how it works with the false teaching of the prosperity gospel today. If you pray the right way, if you do the right things, if you give enough money, then God will listen to you. Or consider the opposite of this. When Jesus says in chapter 5, verse 33, that we should not swear falsely. Do you know why religious people don't lie? There's two reasons. Fear and pride. They don't lie because they're not like those people who lie, right? If you're religious, I don't lie. I'm not like those kind of people. That's pride. And they don't lie because God might get them if they do. This is fear. Or they might not get what they want from God if they tell a lie, right? That's fear. Do you see how the goodness of religious people is a selfish goodness? 
Religious goodness says, if I don't lie, if I give to the poor, if I pray the right way, then God will have to be good to me. And I can feel superior to other people. Using goodness in this way is all about you. It's not about God or other people. It's manipulative goodness that seeks to leverage, to to get God and people to do the things that you want. This This is kind of like relating to God as a boss. He's your boss. You're his employee. What happens if you mess up enough times in your job? You get fired, right? But if you make your boss happy, you might get a promotion, right? You might get a a raise. This is the difference between religion and following Jesus. But Jesus teaches that God is, is not your boss. He's your father who loves you. And when you have God as your father, you have a sweetness that knows you are valuable to him. And that changes everything. When you know this sweetness, you begin to obey because God is your father, not in order to get anything from him. Finally, our last trail marker shows us that a relationship with Jesus is harder. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life, or that leads to life. Those who find it are few. You see, the religious leaders and the Pharisees of Jesus' day were professional rule keepers. They counted over 600 laws and made their checklists. Don't do these things. Avoid doing these things. And they worked hard every day to keep it. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have blown people's minds. How crushing would it have been to hear that if you were a religious person? Because no one's as good as the Pharisees and the religious leaders. This way is hard. This way is impossible. Jesus' way is harder because it's deeper. It concerns the heart. And this was Jesus' point in in chapter 5, one, two, three, six times. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Right? You, you've understood the law in this way, in an external way, but I say to you, it's deeper than that. See what Jesus is doing? He's working his way through the law. And he's going after their nice little checklist and he's blowing it up. He's saying, this way is harder than you ever imagined. You religious people are all about the externals, but your hearts are rotten to the core. So as you read through this sermon, it's it's both beautiful and it's terrifying. It's beautiful because the character of God that's portrayed here is so good. 
I mean, the moral standard is is just so good and pure. You, You read it and you would hope to be a person like that, right? You read it and you think, wow, to, to live like that, to be that kind of person. But in, in the same way, it crushes you because you realize, I can't do that. No one can do that perfectly. The standard's too high. Who in the world could live like that? We consider the two paths and know we know that we've taken the wide and the easy way. And we deserve destruction when we look at this as religious people. We consider uh, the two trees and we know that we deserve to be thrown into the fire. We consider the two houses and we know that we deserve to collapse. So what hope is there for any of us? There's hope here. It's in verse 17. This is the key. He says, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, there's some irony here because as Jesus said this, he must have been thinking about all the times that the religious leaders accused him of breaking God's law because he, he loved people. He spent so much time with sinners he shared meals with tax collectors and prostitutes, and the religious leaders were always saying, "Man, you're such a, you know, you're so lax. You know, you, you don't take the law of God seriously. You can't if you eat with these people, if you spend time with the wrong, the, ro- the wrong kind of people, right?" So Jesus here is is saying to them, "No, I, I haven't come to abolish the law. I'm not loosening anything. In fact, it's it's harder than you could ever imagine." They thought Jesus had a low, a low view of the law. So, so he confronts this, this thinking by saying, you know, don't think that I'm, because I'm so loving, I don't take the law seriously. In fact, I take it more seriously than any of you. But the key here is that Jesus upholds the law to the highest possible standard and fulfills it. He does it. Jesus perfectly lived every letter of the Sermon on the Mount. That beauty that you see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus. To see that character displayed in the Sermon on the Mount and to think, wow, to be a person like that, that's Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all the Beatitudes. He was meek. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was merciful and pure in heart. He was the ultimate peacemaker. And he was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Nailed to a Roman cross. And he who knew no sin died a criminal's death. He took the narrow way. And he deserves all the blessings described in the Beatitudes. Yet, he took the destruction that we deserve for taking the wide way. Do you see it? Jesus takes the narrow way and deserves all the blessings, but he takes the destruction we deserve for taking the easy way. And Jesus rose again, conquering death, to give us all the blessings of the Beatitudes. 
to satisfy us and to comfort us, to give us mercy, to give us the kingdom and to call us sons and daughters. This is what Jesus gives us in a relationship with him. Many, Jesus says, will call him Lord, Lord, and do all kinds of